Hello, and welcome back to another full episode of the Gallery 44 podcast. I'm your host, Lillian O'Brien Davis, curator of exhibitions and public programs at Gallery 44. This season, we'll be exploring how to ask a question. I'm interested in exploring how I can get better at asking questions, learning how to speak up at the right moments, shaking off imposter syndrome, and managing the pressure of always looking ahead to the next thing. I'm here to be more present, slowing down to build better connections. Join me and maybe we can figure things out together. Today I'm speaking with Elizabeth M. Webb, an artist and filmmaker originally from Charlottesville, Virginia. Her work is invested in issues surrounding race and identity, often using the lens of her own family history of migration and racial passing to explore larger systemic constructs. She has screened and exhibited in the US, United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, Ecuador, Singapore, Switzerland, Mexico, Spain, Austria, Norway, and Germany, and was a recipient of the inaugural Alan Sekula Social Documentary Award in 2014. Elizabeth holds a dual MFA in film video and photography media from California Institute of the Arts and is an alumna of the Whitney Independent Study Program in Studio Art, Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture, and the core program at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. She was fall 2019 visiting faculty in sculpture and extended media at Virginia Commonwealth University. Since 2015, she has been the creative producer for Arts in a Changing America, and in 2020 worked on the launch of the Cultural New Deal for Cultural and Racial Justice. She is currently co-editing an anthology with Roberta Uno and Daniela Alvarez, entitled Future Present, Culture in a Changing America, published by Duke University Press, coming out in 2023. Webb's exhibition at Gallery 44, A Bearing Tree is a Witness, examines the plat maps and field notes from the original land surveys of her family's former plantation land in eastern Alabama. The film and sculptural installation positions land surveys, surveying instruments, and plat maps as tools of a Western colonial agenda that helped establish and maintain the power dynamics of white supremacy. Evolving from this conceptual foundation, A Bearing Tree is a Witness thinks through the ways that plant life can provide liberatory models for how our bodies might also subvert these structures of power and control. Welcome, Elizabeth. Welcome to our Gallery 44 podcast. Um, This is that will actually be our second time doing like an audio recording together, which I realized when I was writing my questions. So I was like, oh, this is I don't know. I keep asking you to do recorded interviews. <laughs> well, I love doing it. It's very fun. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. I have a couple of questions for you. I think like for background, we've, we've worked together a couple of years ago um, when I showed your film for paradise in Regina. And since then we sort of have kept in and out of touch. And then um, when I was starting at Gallery 44, I was so happy to reach out to you and follow up about some of the research you'd been doing or that you had mentioned to me that you were beginning to do when we spoke in, I think, probably 2019. And you had talked about how you were learning about these land surveying instruments and how they were sort of making a bigger appearance in your research and in sort of like 
the avenues that you were pursuing around how, as I described in the introduction, like how plant life can provide liberatory models for how our bodies might also subvert structures of power and control. And I was wondering if you could take me through the experience of uncovering the land surveying instruments and how they eventually fitted into your ongoing interest into the region where your family's from. Yeah, thank you. So it actually, it really started with discovering the field notes um, from the land surveys. And basically, I mean, I was in the basement of the Lee County Courthouse in Opelika, Alabama, and really just coming through a lot of uh, land records because within my family, a lot of a quite quite a great deal of land was passed down from um, my great great grandfather, who was a white man, to his black sons. And so, and that was uh, a situation that then went to court and was contested because of their race uh, by the my great great grandfather's sister. And so, I was I was looking for any sort of records about that land because we knew about it through family history, through oral history, that it had gone to court, and there were all these sort of complications with that transaction, I suppose but didn't really know the details of it. And so I stumbled upon the original government, U.S. government land surveys of this former plantation land. And those were done in 1834. And so they were really uh, created at like the height of indigenous dispossession in the area um, and Muscogee removal. And so the government created these land surveys in order to demarcate property. Um, so impose this grid upon the landscape in order to to create property, as I mentioned, and then also to value the land, so to place capital value on the land. So depending on what kind of plant life was growing in a specific area, the land would be more or less valuable for farming purposes. And so I was interested in like sort of the this grid as this um, this imposition onto the landscape, and then thinking about the ways that the plants also might might undermine that system, thinking also about the grid as this this imposition that is sort of in line with and also both sort of supporting and creating the scaffolding of white supremacy in the U.S. And so the field notes um, use these sort of trees and rocks, but mostly trees in, in these particular cases, as these reference points to create the grid. So in like a surveying corner um, would be marked by a witness tree and so a tree that might sort of exists in place of what would now be like a gps coordinate it would be an oak tree or a poplar or a pine and yeah when i was researching that i learned that these trees um, that demarcated these boundaries were called witness trees. So a bearing tree is a witness to a survey corner. And when I learned about that, I thought it was such a sort of beautiful and poetic and kind of eerie uh, description of these trees, which of course do, I believe, like hold these histories um, and thinking about Sadia Hartman and and how she talks about landscape as, as holding these histories that might exist outside of the archive, specifically of, of Black women um, and that was something that I explored a lot in my film for Paradise as well. So it, sort of like that kind of discovery was kind of like a, oh, like there's something here um, in these field notes to to think about and um, unpack a bit more. And so then I started like 
thinking about the, the the tools that were actually used in order to create these land surveys and learning more about those and thinking about sort of this grid as this particular system of visuality that is imposed on the landscape that again is sort of in line with and supportive of the systems of white supremacy that continue to be upheld in our country. And um, I found that a lot of the the instruments were lens-based, um, which was interesting to me as a filmmaker and someone who works with lens-based media. And thinking about how like that sort of system of visuality might be like might exist in relation to the systems that are imposed upon the landscape by my film camera, for instance, um, and how to sort of skew that system as well and how to think about interrupting this particular viewpoint and what it sort of means to create an image of land and how to sort of think about the ways that that the land and the plant life might undermine these systems, both ones that I'm creating and also created more generally by society. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I think the richness of the work in terms of how many layers are like at play in terms of like the metaphor of the bearing tree and the way that sort of like landscape um, reflects not only the kind of family histories that you're tracing, but these larger histories of white supremacy and resistance is so amazing. I remember in grad school, we would often talk about synchronicity that happens when you know research is going really well, (laughs) like where you uncover one thing, which leads you naturally to the next thing and like onwards and onwards, potentially not towards a kind of like resolved ending, but towards sort of like a place of like deeper contemplation or something like that. And yeah, I definitely get that feeling when hearing you talk about the work and like encountering the work in the kind of iterations that I have so far. And so I have a a couple of questions to like teasing out of your answer. And the first one being thinking about negotiations of borders, which is something that appears in your work and in your research and um, thinking about those negotiations, both of race and land. And I'm really interested in the way that acts of resistance are represented in your work. I wonder if you could talk about the different elements where this appears. So I'm thinking of the purple nails, the bronze works, sort of leading question, uh, hoping you could talk a little bit about those details. Yeah, for sure. And just to go back to your um, comment about synchronicity and research, that's like my favorite part of making art, I think, the, these moments in research where it's like, oh my God, it all makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's the best. I actually, they, I just had one recently where the land that, that Paradise once lived on was bought by a, a white couple who now sort of rents it out for paintball. But I was learning that in the first paintball gun was actually created for boundary marking. So it was actually created oh, for, wow. I know, tree marking. And so, yeah, that was amazing to me. And it leads sort of into your, your other question. And so basically, yeah, there are a lot of little moments in throughout the work that kind of point to this exploration of, of boundaries. And some of them are sort of more or less like obvious, depending on how much of the backstory, you know. But yeah, thinking about I mean, so the film actually is um, it's 
16 millimeter film, obviously that's looping in the space. And the film itself was buried along the boundary line of, of the property line of this former plantation land. And I was interested in sort of thinking about how that act returns some sort of agency to the landscape itself. So what happens when you bury it is that the the microbes in the soil will eat away at the emulsion of the film, and so they'll erase parts of the image. And that's a process that I can't really control. There, I mean, there are elements of it. I can decide how long I leave it there. I can sort of speed up or slow down the process a little bit. Um, but it, I, I can't choose which parts of the image are erased. I can't um, sort of like, yeah, decide the the patterns of erasure. And so that was something that, uh, yeah, that I thought about a lot in that film and in the process of making it. Um, and the the film itself, it's called Boundary Exercise, parentheses, on perambulation. And the process of perambulation um, is is sort of a perambulation is like a, a sort of a yearly practice that that people would do. I believe it began in Europe and it was a yearly walk around the boundary of one's property, both to sort of like reinscribe that that property boundary um, for others, but also for uh, the next generation. So children would attend as well and like sort of learn the the perimeter of the the property. And I was interested in that practice as a sort of weird, like, I don't know, in sort of a weird relation to drawing or something. Yeah. And so thinking about like physically laying the film, um, which is this sort of long line of time in its 16 millimeter form, it's like, yeah, a literal line of, of time, laying that along one of these property edges and then thinking about sort of the natural or nature's response to that imposition. And, and there too, sort of the, there is this contesting of the boundary that happens by the soil. And yeah, so in the, in the film as well, there, there are a number of serving instruments that are depicted, but also my nails are painted purple, as you mentioned. Um, and it is like a very specific shade of purple. But in my research, in one of these moments of synchronicity, as you say, I learned the, that purple is a universal, quote-unquote universal symbol for boundary, um, in, property boundary in Alabama. And so if you paint your tree or the trees along the, the edge of your property purple, then that's like a legal, basically it functions the same way as like a sign that says property boundary, no trespassing. Um, and so it was created as a way to sort of like ease the burden of property owners. But yeah, it's, so it's this very specific shade of purple. And if you, you drive around down there, you'll see a lot of trees marked purple. And I was also interested in, in my research, I, well, a lot of my, my prior work deals with sort of the ways that our bodies subvert the color line or negotiate the color line both through sort of my family histories of racial passing and and different ways that um, family members have have undermined the color line in different ways, not only through racial passing. Um, 
But in, in that research, I found out that in the early 20th century and a lot of um, the, the novels and literature that, was, that were coming out about passing at that time, there was an idea that you could quote unquote tell if someone was black, actually black and um, was passing as white if by looking at the, um, their nail beds. So depending on if they had little half moons at the base of their nails, um, you could supposedly tell if someone was was black or white. And of course, this like is not true. And it comes out of this like deep anxiety, like this national anxiety that's rooted in white supremacy of miscegenation or racial mixing. But that was a sort of interesting, quote unquote, tell to me. And so I decided to paint my nails purple, the same um, boundary line purple as a way to sort of respond to to both of those histories of and connect the sort of human histories to the history of the the land. Oh, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> um yeah, I love I love how you choose to punctuate all of your answers, which our viewers can't see, so I won't, <laughs> I won't dwell on it. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Um uh yeah, it was kind of my brain was racing while you were talking. And there's a few things that I wanted to touch on. One being a phrase that you said, sort of like patterns of erasure, when you were describing like burying the film. And I I kind of clung to that because I think it's such an eloquent way of summing up like a lot of the themes that appear in your work. Uh, patterns of erasure being a sort of eloquent way of summing up a lot of the themes that appear in your work and uh, thinking about the ceramic pieces that you've made and um, how they kind of address that. Um, what I, I read in some of your kind of early writing, like research proposal as like a mi- micro transgressions, um, kind of uh, passing, um, you know, um, moving moving through boundaries um and it it's kind of a really fascinating theme that kind of threads throughout your work and then the other thing I wanted to point out trees being boundary lines these sort of natural elements being boundary lines that delineate a property line and I think that there's something so interesting in imagining that something as sort of like mutable as nature could be understood as a permanent boundary like it seems like obvious to me that a tree from one year to the next will move and sway and change in response to its environment and the sun and how warm it was or how cold it was and I love this sort of larger theme in this body of work around how this sort of obvious changing that happens in the landscape, like over short periods of time or like, you know, longer, longer periods of time relates to the kind of human element in the work in that like human beings are doing the exact same thing. Like at any point where you try to kind of like curtail people or group them or limit them in any way. Like there are subversive things that happen or liberatory acts that happen to to shift these boundaries and to to release people from from these parameters, I should say. And yeah. So <laughs> I don't know what that was that I'm saying. We can potentially edit that out if it doesn't make any sense. No, it totally does. Um, Leave it in. 
um, and um, you know, something that I wanted to talk to you about is sort of the ongoing thread through many of your bodies of work and no pun intended, the connection between the body and the world or the body and the earth. And often it's your body or someone in your family, but I think also more broadly, it sort of, we're, we're talking about a body, um, a human one. And I would, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you reflect on that relationship and maybe how you see it evolving in the future or even like just in this body of work specifically. Yeah. So, well, thinking about the way you so eloquently talked about at trees as this sort of natural element that um, seems obvious that it would be a poor choice for a quote unquote <laughs> permanent boundary. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking a lot about how how the sort of roots might network below the ground, um, how the leaves from a tree might fall to the other side of a of a boundary line in, in autumn. And also in my research, and this is in the film as well, I was researching a lot about oaks um, specifically because there were a number of oak species that were listed in the field notes for this particular plantation land. And I in talking with a bunch of ecologists, I found out that oaks are actually like an incredibly difficult species, or sorry, it's not a species, that they're a difficult group to categorize. And so there are two sort of main types of oaks. Um, they're, they're red oaks and white oaks. And the black oak is actually a type of red oak that used to be called the yellow oak because of the color of its bark, which I think is just this, it's this there's humor in that, in the sort of like, certainly like enlightenment driven attempt to, to categorize and name and divide everything. But, but within those two groups, the red oaks and the white oaks, there is so much hybridization that occurs that it's often difficult to determine what species an oak is further down than, than like a broadly speaking red oak or broadly speaking white oak and so there are these species called cryptic species where the different oaks might be like phenotypically the exact same but they're actually these different species Um, and the reverse occurs as well because there's such phenotypic variation within species as well so there might be sort of like two trees that look very different but they're actually the exact same species and so this sort of I don't know, I, I guess like our relation to, to categorizing the oaks was really interesting to me, um, our being like humanities, <laughs> Western <laughs> science, this relation to, yeah, to categorizing the oaks was, yeah, interesting to me in, in thinking about these different ways that the oaks as, um, as a group kind of undermine or um, make difficult this process of categorization and boundary creation on a sort of like identity level too within within the oak groups okay now I'm going to try to remember what the other parts of your questions are well so I think in terms of the the body's relation to the landscape I think that sort of changed uh in my practice from the sort of my early work which was much more performance-based and and often used my body in the landscape. Um, and there's a lot of performance-based video. And then once I started sort of thinking more about 
the land and, and plant life as sort of a, a container of, of histories more specifically, like thinking about like a tree that actually was present for the lives of maybe some of my ancestors that I didn't have the opportunity to know for a whole host of reasons. Then I started, I think I started probably viewing the land as more of an active participant in the in my work, not that I didn't before, but there was sort of like a shift, I think, in terms of like, I don't know, I think of it almost more collaboratively now and thinking as, like thinking about the burial of the film and the landscape or in other work, the, the burial of the film in a, in a channel of water um, and, and using the soil that I gathered from the boundary line of this land as pigment in in these prints all of those things allowed me to to think of the the land and and the plant life as more of a an active collaborator in my practice and thinking about the the bodies that the the land remembers and and sort of in some cases i think specifically in for paradise the land as sort of a a stand-in for the body in a lot of ways, or like the land as maybe stand-in for for the memory of a body that will never be seen by by me. And then thinking about my own body in relation to these bodies that are sort of remembered by the land and the the, the other ways that my own body is inscribing a presence on the landscape and how the landscape is sort of inscribing its presence on on me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. It's so fascinating, and just as you were talking, the 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 kind of some, what came to mind was just that the land and the trees, in particular, like these bearing trees, what they bear witness to is not these sort of like land delineations that represent kind of ownership and kind of i don't know capital what they bear witness to is is history and time and people and bodies and and life um like human life plant life and that yeah like that they continue to stand in many cases (laughs) hopefully in most cases uh, but we know um that's not always the case but like that these trees continue to stand and, and, you know, our witnesses as time goes on. And I, I think it's such a beautiful metaphor to undermine the language of ownership or of control with the language of like observation and, and steadfast, like watching. And I think it sort of brings, like, as you were saying, that relationship between uh, like human bodies and the earth or and and nature into this sort of is it collaborative or like sort of just like coexistent relationship which is i think more truthful about what what that relationship looks like to begin with rather than sort of trying to coerce these trees into sort of like collusion for like models of oppression or something like that yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, well, and you mentioned the the boundary or the the witness trees that are no longer standing as well. And I think that those, um, like in Alabama, I mean, God, the whole state has been 
like clear cut like three times or something. So a lot of a lot of those original um, witness trees from that particular government land survey are no longer standing. And so oftentimes what would happen is when people would clear the land for farming, which of course then farming for a plantation economy that is directly involved in the in slavery and subjugation of of black bodies but they would get rid of the witness trees as well either by mistake or generally by mistake or for ease uh, because of the the desire to create large open um, crop fields but then i'm interested in thinking about how like if a witness tree is cut down how what happens if like a tree of the same species grows a little away from a a survey corner um, from its original location and how is that sort of an act of skewing the grid and one of the other things so um, there are several pairs of um, platinum plated bronze acorns in the show as well and that was thinking about the original meter standards which exist in in a basement in Paris um, and they're sort of the these original meter standards were made of a, um, a platinum iridium alloy. They are the physical measurements upon which almost all other measurements are based. And so I was interested in thinking about using that material, this sort of platinum material, which is, is known as very, very precious and bright, and thinking about what it would be to um, think of another standard um, apart from this sort of meter standard of, of measurement and thinking about, um, yeah, the acorn as this, um, what would it be if we, we created these systems of relation, um, in relation to the acorn, um, rather than a pole in the basement of a library in Paris. Yeah, um, which is sort of more speculative, but um, but yeah, and then there is this doubling that happens as well um, with the acorn, which is a little bit of a it, it, that ties in um, because they're they're double acorns, so they're the the acorns that sort of grow side by side and are discrete um, seeds, but are like connected. Um, and doubling has been something that has been really interesting to me in my work, um, thinking about the stereograph and sort of the system of visuality that the stereograph imposes and in this sort of desire to, to make things that are two-dimensional, three-dimensional, and that sort of act of perception. And the, the stereograph is also very much a part of the, the soil prints that are included in the exhibition. Those are sort of indices of a bunch of stereographic images that were taken in 1950 of this plantation land and actually of Lee County more generally, more broadly. And there are these, they were, they were taken in order to document the erosion that really over farming and the plantation economy had caused and had created on and marked the land. And, but it was interesting to me that when I was talking with the, the person who uh, manages the archive of these images. He was saying that the the stereographic images are were taken vertically rather than horizontally, like we would usually think about them. 
And the reason why is because of the wind. So the plane couldn't fly um, east-west. It had to fly north-south um, in order to get a sort of stable view. So to me, like that also points to this sort of way that that nature or the earth or the elements are kind of fighting back or <laughs> undermining yeah, our that. systems. Yeah, that's so nice. This is a lesson that many like European and sort of Western nations have to continue to relearn because there is this constant idea of being like, we can conquer the West or like we can conquer the open land or like we can document everything and know everything. And I think this is a lesson that we learn all the time, engaging it with indigenous knowledge of the land, but also just by sort of like being out in and on the land, you learn it because you just understand that your like ability to control your situation or your environment is sort of limited very much so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then, and, and certainly the sort of Western notion that we are, are separate from the land, that mm-hmm. there is not this sort of web of relation that exists in, in many indigenous cultures that are, that's sort of based around stewardship of, of land and as a, as relation to our bodies. And so certainly the U.S., like as a settler, settler colonial society in Canada as well, has a lot of unlearning to do in terms of these sort of ways of of thinking and being in the world that are rooted in exploitation, the natural world and each other, because those are not separate. And I mean, I'm curious, like, um, as an artist based, like based in Virginia, but you've also spent some time in New York, like, and you, you do travel down to Alabama for your work, like, you know, translating between those sites, like those, like city, like kind of dense city population to more rural, like how, what is that experience like in terms of like how it informs this sort of like the, that part of your research? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I suppose I've bounced around a lot of different cities in, in the United States for the past seven years. Um, I grew up for the first, what, 22 years or something of my life in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is Monacan and Manahoac land, colonially known as Charlottesville, but and then went to LA for grad school and then to um, New York and then to Houston and then to Richmond and then to New York and then um, back to Charlottesville. So I definitely have been a sort of transient being in a lot of ways, but returning to the, I, I do find myself just really drawn to the landscape of Eastern Alabama um, and mm-hmm. drawn specifically to the land where, where paradise once, once lived. And I do think that there's a, a different type of research that happens like on site um, versus like away from from the site. I think that there's sort of like a more embodied research that happens on site where you're actually sort of interacting with the plant life that mm. exists there, the soil, like the, I don't know, it like <laughs> could get really kind of like, I don't know, it's it's like incredible to me that to think that some of these trees like witnessed the lives of these people that I really have I I mean spent the last um 
15 or so years of my life, like trying to know through the archive. And so it's almost like visiting. I mean, it's like visiting people who met your relatives in a certain way. Like there's this, Mm -hmm. I think that there's a, there's a closeness that I feel with, and, and even living in Brooklyn too. I mean, that's where my grandfather lived and I moved intentionally right down the block from where he lived. So I would pass by his apartment every day and I could see it from my, my window. And so like those, that was a, yeah, an intentional choice to sort of think about proximity and closeness and, and how even like an urban landscape, like, yeah, I mean, there, there are still trees obviously that where like leaves might, might fall from the same tree uh, many years apart. And I mean, certainly like the bricks that like made up his, his apartment are the same. And so thinking about the, the ways that these different places hold, hold histories. And, but I do think like that the research, some of the research that you can do away from a place like that, which has such like an energetic pull, I think like is also useful to me, at least like sometimes distances is allows for a bit more clarity in certain ways. So it's different kinds Um, of research, I think. Yeah. I I, just, as you were talking, I was thinking, um, actually near my apartment, uh, down the street from my apartment actually, um, is my grandfather's old, um, fish and chip shop. Um, he used to run a catering business out of this, uh, storefront and he would cater fish and chips, like, or he had a truck and he would sell fish and chips to the harbor workers, like the dock workers at the Toronto Harbor front. Um, this is in like the like sixties and seventies. So it's like long gone now it's an apartment or something, but on the side, there's a Coca-Cola like mural that was there when, um, my mom was a little girl and would like work at the shop and stuff. And just that memory of walking by or like that memory that kind of occurs to me while walking by it. Like I never knew him when he worked at the store. He was retired by the time I was born, but there's this closeness that I have to him, like just by, just by being there or just by, you know, being near this, this place that has, has his presence somehow still. Anyway, that's sort of, it's an aside, but I want to kind of change gears a little bit and just ask you, uh, like reading your bio, <laughs> um, you know, there's been, there's a lot um, that I'd like to ask you about, but in particular, I wanted to focus on the Whitney ISP um, because it's, it's a program that I think it's been popping up a lot. Like Tia Simone Gardner, our, our most recent artist who we've exhibited in the main gallery, she also did the program. And so I'm really curious about it. And so I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about what your experience was in that program. Yeah. Um, I loved my time there. I think, I mean, I went to the Whitney ISP immediately after graduate school. And so it was also immediately after I had finished my film for paradise, um, which was a very long and like, I don't, it required a lot of, um, after analysis for me, um, because it was so personal. And so, I mean, really like life altering for me, that sort of experience, but it was, it was also, I mean, it is this artwork, right. But it also is like quite personal and, and had quite a lot of sort of implications in my life to make that work. And so for me going to the Whitney after that, um, it was really, 
it was a positive experience to sort of dig into um, theory and especially like British cultural studies, Stuart Hall, which is sort of one of the intellectual pillars of that program. I think that was really, really useful for me in terms of thinking about how to contextualize my own work or how to sort of like debrief with myself after the experience of uh, of making For Paradise especially. But it was so wonderful to be in community with um, artists and scholars and, and curators. And yeah, in that space, all sort of thinking about, thinking about art and theory and culture and um, I think that, I mean, it is a very specific program in a lot of ways, and it has like a very strong lineage of thinkers. And it is also an opportunity to like meet many of your theory heroes. Um, and sometimes it's, that can be challenging. But I think that ultimately, it, it was a very rewarding experience. Like, okay, I have one last question for you. And I am going to couch it in kind of saying like, This season of How to Ask a Question is an inquiry that speaks to a larger investigation into what good criticism looks like and how it also connects with labor practices. Um, I'm not being a good critical thinker when I'm tired and not engaging properly when I'm overworked. I am interested in questions of capacity and labor. Great conversations don't come out of nowhere. So as an artist, but also as sort of someone who wears many hats um, in their professional career, um, I'm curious about how you, Elizabeth, manage your own workload and ability to be present with various projects. And um, I know earlier we were talking about how you're sort of like, you're, you've got like a social commitment this weekend and then you're driving to Canada in like the next day. So I think that this question is maybe well-timed <laughs> for you. Yeah, you are catching me at a um, a moment of particular overwhelm, um, we'll call it, um, in terms of, yeah, the my, my day job, if you can call it that, um, with Arts in a Changing America, which is, I, I mean, I think I'm, I, I don't know, there are so many models for like how to be an artist in the world and the one I currently occupy is um, sustain myself financially by having a, um, a job and I'm really uh, grateful that it is a job that I like a lot and find a lot of value in and um, it is very much dealing with uh, social justice and cultural equity and so we like I'm grateful that we like can talk about these things and think about these things within my my job as well, um, thinking about sustainability in terms of being humans and employees, um, and like humans first, ideally. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, it can be challenging. And I think for me also, like I sort of have to activate different parts of my brain in order to do that job and in order to do my creative work. And Mm -hmm. I'm also not someone who, works particularly quickly in terms of my creative practice. It's very often very slow and requires a lot of like space and time and thought. And so, yeah, it can be frustrating, especially when like my creative moments um, don't align with my quote unquote free time. And 
Yeah. And so I, I think it is like, it's a thing that I'm constantly juggling and balancing and I've been able to find certain things that make it easier. I also like continue to struggle with it all the time. But I mean, it's also actually, I like literally just before this, I was taking notes on this call um, with an arts organization. It's actually like a, I would say like a timed funding initiative um, focused on sort of cultural equity and social justice um, work. And they're one of our partners and they're, they've just recently launched this program, um, that is like providing salaries to artists and culture bearers for their practices. So like acknowledging the, um, the, the, the role, the important role of artists in, um, society and as cultural producers, um, and culture as something that moves before policy and and acknowledging that by by giving salaried like positions to people um just to continue to do their own work so i think that there are certain like it's definitely part of a larger conversation that is being had at least little parts of bubbles of the (laughs) of the u.s and um but i mean also i think the funding systems here and in Canada are quite different from what I know. And we have very limited government support, um, for the arts. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard out here. It's hard. (laughs) I mean, um, yeah, I think that the Canadian context is one that's so interesting in terms that like we do get funding, like, um, at like municipal, provincial and, um, like federal level, but it's like, it doesn't really keep the wolf from the door. <laughs> so like what an interesting initiative that you're describing that's sort of like rolling out in the yeah. US or like in bubbles of the US, as you say. Well, um, and I mean, even the issue of healthcare, like the fact that you guys have healthcare yeah. built in, yeah. like that's a, one of the huge reasons why I, I mean, I, again, once again, I really like my job and I find it fulfilling in a lot of different ways, but also it gives me healthcare and that's- yeah not something to be taken for granted, especially in the US. It's interesting comparing, bringing this conversation to you as after talking with another artist who is based in the United States. And both of our chats have been very pragmatic (laughs) where it's like, well, I manage it by taking breaks and by making sure I like can get my teeth cleaned and can get my prescription medication if I were to need some. Like, and these are ways that we kind of like sustain ourselves and keep ourselves rolling. And yeah, I think it just kind of underscores th- these are the fundamental things that every human being needs. <laughs> I don't know if you out there are being, are shocked by this information. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it's, Flash. yeah, it's really important to kind of underscore and, and remember sort of to maybe cap off these conversations by just saying like, go lie down. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, Know that your labor is seen. I know value your, your labor, labor, Lillian O'Brien Davis. Uh-huh. I value your labor, Elizabeth M. Webb. <laughs> uh, may I ask you what the M stands for? Yeah, it stands for Margaret. It's my, my one of my great grandmother's names. Oh, I like that. It's what a beautiful name. Elizabeth Margaret Webb. 
on that note, um, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy we've been able to continue our relationship and this project has found a home at Gallery 44. Uh, and so once again, for our listeners, Elizabeth's show, A Bearing Tree is a Witness, is on at Gallery 44 from October 21st to December 10th, 2022. So um, we will see you in person. Um, I can't wait to shake each and every one of your hands, as I'm sure... <laughs> will happen um yeah thank you so much elizabeth so that's it what did you think drop us a line with your thoughts on today's pod you can reach me at lillian at gallery44.org or follow us on instagram at gallery44photo this podcast was written edited and presented by lillian o'brien davis that's me co-produced with alana traficante edited by aaron hutchinson Special thanks to Respectful Child for the sweet tunes. We acknowledge the support of the Canada Council for the Arts. Talk to you next time.